All right, those are the musical stylings of Bo Burnham. Why would we be playing such a thing on the nose on this day in 2023? I'll explain it in just a second. Well, uh, I no, I, I first I should say that in the second segment of today's show, we're going to talk about The Power, which is an adaptation of a Naomi Alderman novel, one of the f- very few books we've talked about on the nose over the years. Uh, and now it has been put on the screen on uh, Amazon Prime. Um, it's a really kind of a fascinating project. The book was fascinating. I'm finding this thing fascinating. The panel has different ideas about this. But I would say just quickly, uh, after our first segment, we're going to do a very quick pledge break. We know you don't like them. Kat and I will try to make it fast. So don't go away because I'd like you to stay for the conversation about the power. Uh, in the first segment, uh, well, first of all, let me introduce the panel. It would be good if I had a plan that I were following. Unfortunately, that seems not to be the case. Our panel is Rebecca Castellani, co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications and a freelance writer, Rand Richards-Cooper, fiction writer, contributing editor at Commonweal and the restaurant critic for The Hartford Current. Lindsay Lee Wallace writes about culture, healthcare, and health equity and other stuff, too. Uh, and yes, here at the beginning, and this is now I will now explain why you heard Bo Burnham singing. We're going to talk about culture during the pandemic. We were triggered into doing this by a New York Times kind of a compendium, uh, a, a list of 17 watershed pieces of culture that define the COVID era. Uh, an awful lot of them were things we actually did nose episodes, starting with White Lotus uh, and including Folklore by Taylor Swift, Ted Lasso, Tenet, the movie Tenet, uh, Zillow, uh, which we did divided, we did an entire show to Zillow and Zillow scrolling, uh, Inside Bo, by Bo, Bo Burnham. We've sort of covered that. And of course, The Slap. But some of the other uh, contenders were the novel Severance by Ling Ma, Lunch Doodles with uh, with Mo Williams. I don't still know what that is even. But anyway, it's something. Uh, the song Dior by Pop Smoke. I could go on and on. TikTok challenges, baking, baking shows, that kind of stuff. So I guess, Lindsay, the first question we have to ask ourselves is, was culture really any different during the pandemic, or did we just sort of latch on with desperate tentacles to certain things, maybe in a way that we wouldn't have? I think, I mean, I was thinking about the list that we all were looking at from the New York Times and specifically Tiger King, which I actually didn't watch. That wasn't one of my pandemic bubble experiences, but how, like, I feel like that show just benefited from kind of what you're saying. We just ra- latched on to what was nearby <laughs> at the beginning there and not necessarily that because that wasn't stuff influenced by the pandemic. It was stuff that had been planned. And then the pandemic crashed down on us and made us all say, OK, let's watch this like horrifying docuseries about this bonkers big cat crime. <laughs> but I feel like sort of now we're seeing more stuff that is affected by the pandemic in a in a more like artistic and considered way. But I know that's not really that's not really what we're talking about is in terms of our early experiences, the stuff that we just kind of latched on to. No, I think it's totally fair and good to talk about that. In fact, Re- Rebecca, Rebecca and I both stan Emily St. John Mandel. Um, <laughs> one of us has had a 50 minute conversation with Emily St. John Mandel now, but and the okay, other one of us hasn't. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, fl- I'm flexing. Uh, but, you know, I mean, Rebecca, I think she's sort of so amazingly, I mean, whatever Don DeLillo was to 9-11, she is yeah. to the pandemic. She wrote uh, Station 11, which begins with a huge pandemic well before, years before the pandemic started, but the adaptation onto HBO kind of really did kind of roll right up to and I think into the pandemic. Meanwhile, while all that's happening, she's sort of touring to support the HBO project, and she winds up writing uh, her the sort of the, her most recent novel, Sea of Tranquility, which is, among other things, about an author 
touring to promote a book that has a pandemic in it while a pandemic is breaking out. I mean, I don't know. I, I, what else can she do? This is sort of like the triple crown of pandemic culture. Yeah, she's a very prescient witch and uh, very metafictive at this point. Yeah, I think that she's kind of a great microcosm for this sort of Ouroboros that was happening with, you know, we always have loved pandemic, speculative fiction, dystopia. I mean, this predates the pandemic. I mean, this is one of my favorite genres to explore, whether it's Stephen King's take or, you know, The Road, Corman and Carthy. Like, this place is a very familiar place for us to inhabit. And then to have this happen on a very real global scale to us and to see how culture responds to that in real time was really fascinating and surreal um, to live through something like this and then to also live through the resulting sort of cultural shift the way you know certain shows have decided to address the pandemic incorporate it i'm thinking like you know your stalwart shows like gray's anatomy that's on like season 200 at this point like versus shows that kind of we're not even going to touch that with the 10th of poll we're going to set the show after the pandemic i just think it's kind of been like a leveling like what do you do with this do you acknowledge it does it become a central thing and then of course there was all the things like Lindsay was talking about that we sort of just latched onto, and i think that that's a whole other sort of conceit is when we're desperate, like what sort of lifeboats do we look to? And I think that the flash in the pan, you know, docu-series, love is blind, <laughs> nonsense was one thing. But I think for a lot of us too, is revisiting old shows, familiar shows, things that took us out of that mindset that was completely escapist. I watched The Sopranos for the first time. It completely took me out of being in a pandemic locked in my house. So I think there was kind of that like duality of what people were looking for. Either yeah, to I want to explore that duality, but please don't say love is blind is nonsense while there is only <laughs> a pane of glass separating me from Cat Pastor. I'm the one who's going to get attacked uh, when you say something like that. Uh, so before we go to Rand, let's sort of remind people just like, you know, uh, yes, the question is, do you want to approach this as a subject or do you want to avoid this as a subject? If you're going to approach it and you're watching Station Eleven, uh, you're going to hear uh, a brother talking to a sister um, Himesh Patel is the brother. Uh, Tia Sarkar is the sister. She works at the ER. The pandemic is breaking out. This is a one cat. Hi. Hi. Okay. I wasn't supposed to be at work today, but I got called back into the ER an hour ago. A 16-year-old flew in from Moscow last night, presented with flu symptoms. We've never seen a flu like this before. It's chaos. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds kind of bad. I was gonna ask if you wanted to get a drink, but I guess you're working late tonight. Laura and I are in a fight. Ronnie, where the I lost my job at flower shop. Steven, it's too late to run. You need to get to Frank. Don't believe a word the news says. The city's gonna be People are walking around already exposed and they don't even know it. Avoid contact with anyone. Just you, just Frank. Okay, but this happens though, right? I mean, this happens. Is this Get happening? To Frank. Lock yourselves in, build a barricade. It's your best chance at surviving. Surviving? Yes, Jeevan, that is what I'm trying to tell you. So that's a cheery picker upper. Um, so Rand, this is actually something in your own household that you know different people have different approaches uh, at a time when nerves are rattled uh, and people either need some kind of soothing uh, cultural presence or something that takes you right into the mouth of hell. Yeah, Colin, you um, you used in in the, in our group chat before the show a really helpful uh, concept, <laughs> distinguishing the soul balm, b a l m, a balm to our soul, versus the soul bomb. 
And and I, I think the different ways of um, of coping with uh, COVID and all of its stresses and anxieties and fears really varies so much from person to person. Um, at one point, I did decide to rewatch the film Contagion, which um, uh, before COVID, you know, I had watched in the way you you watch cheesy disaster movies with the kinds of pleasure that go along with that. But now in the middle of COVID, I found myself getting, you know, pretty skittish and nervous about it. My wife, Molly, who has watched a lot of TV during COVID, and we've, in fact, our family has watched just an overwhelming amount of TV. That's something I'd love to talk a little bit about. But my wife doesn't want anything dark. My uh, uh, 17-year-old, our 11th grader, uh, and I, we tend to prefer dark dramas. And Molly would walk by and say, oh, no, not that again. Uh, And she would, that's why she watched, ended up watching shows like, uh, the Good Place and and other comedies because those made her feel better. Um, and fortunately, there was enough TV to provide soul balm and soul bombs in in spades to everyone. I mean, my my main comment about how we coped with this was by watching just an enormous amount of TV and the pleasures that that provided, which included our family's togetherness and our watching something and then talk about talking about it, are not at this point entirely distinguishable from the sense of retrenchment and and the kind of deformation in a way of our social selves that covid caused and honestly that i haven't entirely you know rebounded from i'll just say one last thing about that you know the massive amount of television production there was i sometimes got the feeling uh, lindsay used the expression lifeboats that it was a little bit like uh, the entertainment industry equivalent of dunkirk of the british navy you know, one series at a time, they were being masses of, uh, of, of series of were, were sent over to rescue us from this this hell that we were in. Yeah. Although, um, although the, the power, which we're going to talk about later, is an example of a series that started filming and almost immediately had to shut down for a really long time because of the pandemic. Right. So it didn't oh, right. it did, inter- it, it did uh, interrupt. So um, I just want to quickly say that I've had now two bad experiences with Contagion. When Contagion came out, my son and I made the mistake of watching it on a plane to San Francisco. San Francisco. So we oh, basically no. thought when we got out, we were going to die. Uh, oh, no. and, and then we, I watched it again during the pandemic and I was kind of amazed at like how many things they already had right and they social distancing was the term mm-hmm. Lawrence Fishburne says and stuff like that but Lindsay maybe say a little bit more specifically what you did turn to what I mean what's what's the cultural touchstone where every time you see it or hear it or watch it or read it or whatever it is you're going to think about that sort of two and a half year stretch well so this is something that actually Rebecca and I realized right before the show was a shared experience for us which is strange because I don't think this was something that many people turned to but it was actually the show Big Love um which came out you know when it f- first came out it was I didn't know anything about it and then for whatever reason myself and my partner and our roommate and my roommate's partner which was my quarantine bubble decided that that was what we were going to spend our time on and um It was just like, I suppose that because it was so dramatic and so strange, but had absolutely nothing to do with any any of what was affecting us at the time, it was really diverting. And I wouldn't say comforting necessarily, but we would have like, you were saying, you know, watching something and then talking about it afterwards. We would watch an episode and then have an extremely long conversation about what each of us would do if we were in that circumstance. You know, if we were like Bill Pullman's third wife and, you know, we had to live in the annex and how upset we were about that. And it was honestly that compared with the conversations we were having about like who's going to go grocery shopping and sanitize all the groceries and how are we going to pay rent? That kind of conversation was a huge 
Balm, I guess, with an L, even though it could get kind of contentious because we were all really cooped up together and we were tired of sharing one bathroom. It was nice to be focused on something other than the real problems that we were dealing with. Right. One tiny correction. If you were Bill Pullman's wife, you would have been the first lady. You would have died uh, by the Martian ah, attack in Independence. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and uh, you meant Bill Paxton. But there's, I did. there's too many bills. There's no question about it. And we've all got bill, we got bills we got to pay. So, uh, so, Rebecca, I don't know. I want to give each of you a chance to do a quick thing about like one more thing that's going to forever symbolize the pandemic for you. What else What else do you have in your bag besides uh, Big Love? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said, I rewatched a lot of things I hadn't revisited since I first watched them. Um, I, I watched Big Love. I rewatched ER, not all of it, but most of it. Um, Breaking Bad, I ended up rewatching. Um, and then I watched a couple things I hadn't seen, as I mentioned, The Sopranos. I watched Sex and the City for the first time. But in terms of things that felt like really that I'll look back on in 10 years and say, wow, that was a piece of culture that struck me during the pandemic and exemplifies what it felt like. It would definitely be Bode Burgum's Inside. That really, really struck me. Uh, that came out sort of midpoint as to what I sort of identify in my brain as the pandemic proper. It really felt like it just perfectly spoke to our collective sort of like agita we had at that point and that feeling of you've got all this time how are you are you using it well? Are you being creative? Are you just like sucking at the hose of like the next, you know, trash, whatever that's on television or it's on TikTok? And I think that sort of like confrontation that he goes through throughout that, I don't even know what to call it. It's an album, it's a visual experience, but it felt just very much the way we all sort of felt at times during the pandemic. So I think that's what I'll probably look back on most as like really what embodied the capital P pandemic to me. You know, Rand, I know that that was something for you, too. I think there's two possible reactions. We did a whole nose on or a nose episode on Inside uh, by, with Bo Burnham. And I think one reaction is, oh, wow, Bo Burnham's all trapped all by himself. And the other one is, oh, wow, I'm trapped with Bo Burnham. I kind of had the <laughs> latter reaction, like I didn't want to be trapped with Bo Burnham. But maybe maybe say a little bit about that and how it landed for you. So I, I did watch it. Um and I really, really, I, I guess I would say loved it, but it was some encapsulation of and distillation of the essence of being locked away. And you either want more of that, you you want to have that expressed for you, or you've had enough of it on your own. But it's combination of loneliness, uh, ruefulness, self-involvement, self-awareness, ecstasy, and 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 wistfulness. It was really perfect for for the moment. But I wouldn't have wanted to watch a lot of it. I will point to two other things. Um, John Oliver. Um, that I watched again, mostly through our teenager. But I, I, what I loved about that was, and and this was this sort of uh, daily oasis of sanity. The Times article uses that in reference to something else. It was it was sanity because no matter how locked away in our own rooms we were, ridiculousness it goes on in the world out there. Absurdity goes on in the world out there, and insanity goes on in the world out there. And you need someone who will call that out. John Oliver is that guy for me. The high point was when he insulted the city of Danbury and they named the, the John Oliver Memorial sewer after him. This was at the height of the first wave of COVID. And he went up for the river cutting, ribbon cutting ceremony at the John Oliver Memorial sewer. I don't know. I felt like ecstatic. I felt triumphant. He was out there in the real world. He was using, he was laughing and he was calling out um, absurdity and insanity the way he always does. I'll just add one more thing um, on a very different note. One of the shows that we a lot of, we we must have watched sixty series during these three years, and some of them I've forgotten. I sent you that list around. I can't remember a few of the shows on that list, 
But one show that we came to rely on a lot was actually made before the pandemic. It's called A French Village. It's seven seasons showing uh, the experience of a small town, provincial town in France during the Nazi occupation. And something about the show's lack of irony, um, dramatic irony, yes, but sort of it doesn't have I, characters who themselves are ironic minded. Dramas lived when the stakes are are absolute um, and, a, and a kind of high stakes moral earnestness. Um, every aspect of the show kind of took us out of the particular crisis we were in and brought us into lives lived passionately and complicatedly in another kind of global calamity. And and we love that show. That's a nice distillation of it. Yeah. All right. So we're going to have to take a break here. I'll just quickly say, if I would mention for me, the music of Aruj Aftab, who's a Pakistani singer, particularly the album Vulture Prince, which was released in the middle of the, uh, of the pandemic. And I'd hoped we'd have a conversation about Ted Lasso, because I think that's a kind of a complicated thing. But uh, maybe on another day we'll do that. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. We're going to have a little tiny pledge break in the middle of all this. In fact, we might be rolling into it kind of right about now. We'll try to make it as quick as we can so we can get right back to you and tell you about the power. Sequence smile, black lipstick, sensual politics. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. You're hearing a little bit of the uh, terrific Morgan Kibbe uh, soundtrack, or score, excuse me, that's the score to The Power, a television series adaptation of Naomi Alderman's 2016 novel. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime right now. It actually really does have an interesting score, and the soundtrack's really good, too. The collection of songs, I learned uh, that I liked a new song called Wizard by Dora Jar, which sounds like something you tell people if you wanted them to shut the door. But um, anyway, uh, our panel is here. Uh, our panel is Rand Richards Cooper, Rebecca Castellani, uh, and uh, excuse me, and Lindsay Lee Wallace. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the power. I'll just quickly set it up here and just say that uh, the power begins with the idea 
It's not the easiest sell in the world either, but it begins with the idea that women, especially young women, are developing this unusual power in their bodies to emit electrical bursts from their uh, fingers or hands, uh, and this uh, sort of upsets the power balance of the entire world. So, um, uh, Rebecca, why don't uh, you and I get started here, uh, and uh, we should say that, I should say that you know, years from now, when I'm in assisted living, Rebecca's going to come by, like, you know, once a year and just we'll have a big argument about the power. Uh, and I, I certainly look forward to that. Because uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't see the book quite the same way. I just First of all, let's just talk a little bit about the series itself, setting the book out of our minds if possible. How do you think this is working so far? I think it's working. I really do. I uh I'm enjoying it. I think that there's a little bit of some uneven, underbaked performances, but for the most part, I think it's very strong uh, acting-wise. I think that it's, it's you know, I've only seen the first three episodes, maybe four, three. Um, regardless, it's been pretty faithful to the book so far while making some choices I agree with. You know, they've updated it so it happens in a post-COVID landscape, which has slightly changed, you know, people's reactions to what starts when things start kind of spiraling out of control. There's a little bit of a precedent in place already for how we behave, which I thought was kind of an interesting thing. They've definitely delved more into the nuances of the gender politics that were present to some extent in the book, but not really unpacked as much as they could have been. Um, so I think it's done a really nice job of modernizing it while staying very faithful to the text. And I'm really excited to see where it goes from here and how faithful it's going to be and where the story ends and where they plan to like divide seasons. Cause I imagine, I think this is supposed to be a multi series uh season series kind of thing. So I'm really interested to see how the rest of it shakes out. Before we go to the rest of the panel, let's hear a little clip from the series. Um, you're going to hear uh, John Leguizamo, uh, who plays Rob Lopez, uh, and Tony Collette as uh, Margot Cleary Lopez. They are sort of one of four, or I think it's ultimately going to be five separate storylines uh, that are followed here in The Power. Uh, they are parents. She is the mayor of Seattle. He's a doctor. Uh, their daughter has begun to exhibit some of these signs. They go, they take her to a hospital. She gets looked at in, in an MRI, which she kind of blows up. I was trying to figure out how much an MRI costs, because they just kind of brush it off. And I'm thinking, that's like $1.5 $1. Like yeah. $1. million the hospital is going to have to generate. But anyway, Alexa Doig is uh, Natasha Bulan, who's the doctor who uh, put the young lady in the uh, MRI. Here's the clip. This is B1 cat. Are those pacemaker cells? Like the sign of atrial nerve? Yeah, would you explain the electrical impulse? Okay, lay person terms, please. <clears throat> it's an organ. It's a new organ. Yeah, one that generates electricity. Well, that's insane. No, not really. I mean, the, the heart, the eye. The brain, they all generate electricity. Yeah, but unlike those organs, that's all this one seems to do. Well, where did it come from? Well, I mean, if it was one girl, I'd say it was a random mutation. And the nature throws us curveballs, I know that, but it's hundreds and thousands. It could be some genetic switch that flipped. Something that was there, dormant, and it just... But why? Why, why would it do that? Well, it's got to be environmental, right? Don't you think? Pollution, contaminated soils, stressors... Or... Survival. So, wait, you're saying either we did this to these girls or they developed it out of necessity.
So, um, first of all, uh, one of the things that happened, I mentioned that this thing got shut down because of the pandemic. Um, in fact, Tony Collette was not going to have this role. Uh, and I, th- I think we, we may have dodged a bullet. I won't say who it was going to be, but Tony Collette is just the perfect person for this particular role. But um, so, uh, you know, I, I want to hear a, a little bit from, from all of you about your immediate reaction. Lindsay Lee Wallace, why don't you also tell us how this is? We should say that Lindsay Lee Wallace is the only person here. We selected her because she was very well of the series, but she hadn't read the book. Rand and... Um, and Rebecca and I have all read the book. But uh, tell us how you're feeling. Yeah, that's true. I, I have deliberately avoided the book for this purpose. Um, I agree with you about Tony Collette. I love Tony Collette so much. And when I first heard about this series, I saw the premise and I thought to myself, like, gosh, that could lend itself to some bioessentialism and that this would be a really bad time for that, considering the way that transgender people are being targeted in legislatures and culturally around the country. And I thought to myself, God, I really don't want to see my beloved Tony Collette's face on t-shirts being worn by trans exclusionary radical feminists. That would be so sad for me. So I was really nervous going into this. And then as I watched it, I've seen um, eight episodes, but I, you know, no spoilers, but um, I was really I was really moved by it. I mean, I agree that the performances aren't totally equal across the board. And I think that kind of speaks to um, what you were saying, Colin, about the fact that filming for this was started and stopped and it happened, you know, in many places and with many different teams. And I think that, you know, that kind of chaos will lend itself maybe sometimes to things being a little bit unequal. But I thought that they laid a really interesting groundwork, I guess, for the places that this show seems like it's going to go. And I I haven't read the book, but I know that, you know, lots of really chaotic things start to happen there. And I think what we've seen so far in the show, the episodes that have been released is a lot of like, we're building the characters, we're building different, you know, factions and different situations, reactions to the situation, which is something that I love to watch like a fake public health response. Um, That was, you know, maybe something born of participating in a not necessarily totally effective public health response during COVID that now watching this rollout on TV is really interesting to me. Um, And I think that it also is, it's interesting how they talk about, they talk about Prussian issues, they talk about like reproductive rights, and they talk about, you know, healthcare and medical rights and autonomy. But I don't think that the way that they're discussing anything on the power is a direct allegory for one specific issue of our time, which I think makes it a lot more like, all-encompassing and interesting to watch. It makes you think about things and want to start a conversation without necessarily saying like, oh, they're trying to talk about abortion or they're trying to talk about X, Y, Z. And I am not personally a believer in the idea of, you know, one television show or movie that is like, this is going to create social change at all, especially not one that comes from Amazon. But I do think that ideas are inspirational. And I think that watching, watching issues of autonomy and power be discussed this way is potentially really interesting and inspiring for a lot of people, or that's been my experience watching it so far. Hmm, great answer. So, Rand, uh, tell us, uh, you know, you, you read the book, now you've seen, we should say that uh, that she actually has, the reason she's seen eight episodes is she's got screeners. Uh, there are only five episodes for the us. Oh, and yeah, the, I'm those, sorry. Us, <laughs> us members of the common ruck uh, are only allowed to see those right now. But so, um, Rand, I don't know where you are in the series right now, but tell me what you're thinking. Well, I've seen the first four. Uh, Let me point to three things that I liked. I was glad you played that clip because one thing I like, or two, is uh, the presence of Tony Collette and John Leguizamo. Um, Just by pure coincidence, this past week I'd seen Tony Collette in two things. Uh, The supernatural thriller called Hereditary, 
which is quite rollickingly weird, and um, a sort of mediocre um, miniseries called Pieces of Her, where she pay, plays a Patty Hearst-like figure under witness protection. But she has that, uh, that particular quality of intelligence under stress, uh, and she's so good at it, the furrowed brow and, and, and the worry, but the inner resourcefulness. John Leguizamo, who plays her husband, and he's a physician in his role, um, he tends to play usually scuzzy or weaselly or crazy characters. So I was glad to see him cast out of type. He's an enormously talented actor and music guy and does lots of stuff. So I, I love them. There are great visuals in this movie. When when we read the novel, I thought, oh, this is going to be a movie with great visuals. And there are the, like the scene where Allie, one of the protagonists who's discovering her electrical power, is sort of communing with electrical eels through the glass of a, of a huge aquarium. There's a lot of stuff like that. And third... I also really like the deft way that the sort of standard format of natural disaster, biocontagion movies is kind of inverted and then complicated. You know, whenever you watch like San Andreas, the earthquake movie or contagion, for me, by far the most enjoyable parts of the movie are those first 20 minutes when everything seems fine. But in the background, usually on someone's TV that's playing the news, like there's a little thing that happens, you know, in Indonesia or across the country and no one's paying attention except one guy looks and says, wait a sec, you know, what is that? So this mechanism of doom manifesting itself in little flare ups of bad things, gradually seizing the collective consciousness is the standard trope. This film inverts that at first because those little flare-ups are flare-ups of you know righteous things of uh, ultimately sort of good things happening uh liberating things at least at first as we move in you know um, that's going to become more complicated so i thought that was a witty and deft inversion of uh of a of a of a well-known cinematic trope i will say if we get it, if we have a second round of talk Ultimately, I'm kind of meh about this, and I'm, I'd be happy to say why, but I did want to start off by saying it has a lot to offer um, that's pleasurable. Since you mentioned Hallie Bush, who plays uh, Allie or Eve, depending on the context, uh, and I think is a pretty new face in acting. I'm not aware of anything Hallie Bush has done before, but that could be on me. Uh, let's hear a little bit of her. She, I think in this scene, has finally kind of landed uh, in, a, in a kind of refuge run by nuns, uh, and there are other girls there who have the power. Uh, and so let's hear a little bit of B2, Kat. Look, we got it because we need it. So you think it's God, really? Maybe. I mean, maybe there is a God, and she just left us alone all these years to figure out the, what, equality between ourselves? And then a few weeks ago, she just thought, F it. You had your chance. And now she's like, y'all. I've had to step in with a little something to even things out. <laughs> Go. <laughs> I think you're right. It's going to be a different world for my daughter. Already is. We just got to take it. So, you know, Rebecca, I think one thing the series does interestingly, I'm, I'm really liking the series and I get that there's pacing questions and stuff like that, but I'm really enjoying the series anyway. And I think there are these moments of real intimacy like this, but then there are like these big pieces in the series, this whole sequence that takes place in quote unquote Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, which first of all, must have cost a heck of a lot of money to do with just hundreds and hundreds of extras and drone shots and everything under the sun. But I also found it... I don't know. I mean, one of the things they go for there, as movies and TV often do, is the sense that you really are seeing a news event unfold. Uh, and I thought they did that remarkably well. Uh, I, I've, I got very excited watching it. 
Yeah, I agree. I think that, again, like it's benefited in some ways from having us all just gone through this. If you have a little bit more of a precedent for how the news responds to something like this. So I think that they captured that sort of like uncertainty unraveling into, oh, my gosh, this is really happening. Now, how do we address it? And now it's growing and now it's out of control. Horses out of the barn. I think that sort of mounting tension, it might have mounted a little bit too slowly in the first couple of episodes, but I do feel like it's picked up now and it's it's full steam ahead. And I think that was definitely one of the things it handled best in terms of translating the uh, the book to the show. I also think that the stakes feel like they're, I mean, the stakes were always high because this is about as high stakes as it can get, but it feels higher now. I think with all that we've all gone through, I, I'm a, for certainly a different person than I was five years ago when we talked about this. And there's been a lot of things that have happened socially, politically that have put women at even a larger disadvantage than we have been. And to see this play out, it's always going to be cathartic. I know it's problematic. I know the powers is going to escalate and people are going to do bad things with it, but there is just such a feeling as a young woman of catharsis watching these young girls realize that, you know, they have a shot at equity. Yeah. And, I, and I know that the, the bell it can't get unrung and it's going to escalate like it always does. Power corrupts. But for me, what was always a big takeaway for the book and has been the guiding light of the show is just that feeling of like, gosh, imagine what it would be like to walk to my car at night and not be worried about my safety. Like there is just something undeniably electric. Pardon the pun about that idea. Lindsay, you seem like you're about to say something there. Yeah, just I would agree about the um I we've and we've had some conversations, you know, leading like in our in our email thread leading up to this about power and not, you know, it not being the case that simply there's half the population that is like innately better than the other half. And if we simply swapped who was more powerful, everything would be fine. Like Rebecca was saying, bad things will happen. But um, I just was relating to that, the idea of like the especially considering everything that is going on in the world, but also just generally being aware of the danger that I either am in or am socialized to believe that I'm in as a woman, like watching these people feel like they have, you know, the ability to walk to their car at night or the ability to push back against somebody who is trying to take advantage of them was powerful for me. Well, um, we're going to have to go to a break here so you guys will have some time to make some recommendations and endorsements and things like that. I do want to quickly just tell people who are fans of Ted Lasso uh, that Tohib Jamal, who is Sam on Ted Lasso, uh, has a major role as Tunde uh, in this. I think he's one of the uh, really uh, interesting performers in here. There's a whole bunch of really interesting performers, including Hallie Bush herself. Um, There's also a really remarkable uh, performer by Daniela Vega, who who is, I believe, a trans person and mostly, I think, maybe a a soprano singer from Chile, and she plays Sister Maria uh, in uh, in this sort of strange nun-run uh, refuge that they all go to. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. We'll come back. The panel will make some recommendations. I am no bride. I am key. I am no mother. I am no bride. I am 
Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. Welcome back to the news, uh, and it's time for me to thank Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer. Jonathan McPants is the producer of the news every single episode, if possible. Uh, and, uh, of course, Lily Tyson is our senior producer. Um, we're going to make some recommendations now. Uh, Re- Rebecca Castellani, Rand Richards-Cooper, Lindsay Lee Wallace are our panelists. So, uh, Rebecca, why don't you get us going with recommendations? Okay, so my first recommendation feels very Rand specific, and that is a, an esoteric German show called Dark on Netflix. Um, I think it came out 2017 and ended in 2020, and it is next to impossible to describe. I actually had a friend describe it to me as a cross between The Leftovers and Stranger Things, and that's probably as close as you can get without getting into spoiler territory. But all I will say is it about broke my brain. And it was, I think, one of the best first seasons of a television show I've ever seen. Um, and the rest of the seasons are great, too. But the first season just does a masterful job of character building in a very brief amount of time and in German. And I felt like I could speak German by the end. So really enjoyed that. And my second endorsement is just going to be a general endorsement for Margaret Atwood, the writer, the Canadian poet, uh, novelist. She was Naomi Alderman's mentor for The Power. And there are many stylistic and contextual choices that she makes that are very reminiscent of Margaret Atwood. I just am Margaret Atwood's number one fan. You might know her from writing The Handmaid's Tale, but I would highly, highly recommend checking out her Mad Adam trilogy, which is a dystopian, another kind of plague sci-fi trope that's just really, really smart the way she uh, has her little twist on it. The Heart Goes Last is another great one. It's a nice piece of satire. She really does everything. So if you're looking for a new novelist to dig into, I really can't say enough about Margaret Atwood. I feel like Cat's Eye is overlooked frequently. Oh, so it's good. Kind of a stepchild novel. Um, yes. I-, I was a little disconcerted, by the way. The nuns in this thing kept saying, praise be, uh, which now <laughs> Plus, fruit, yes. has, has connotations of only really one thing now. Uh, all right. So, Rand, what are you going to tell us uh, to get into? Yeah, I appreciate the recommendation from Rebecca of the German uh, show Dark Dunkel. Oh, it's a <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a terrific show, and it does kind of break your mind. You know how some shows, it, well, if you're me, if if they're if they're structurally too complex and they're time shifting and frame shifting, you can have this cognitive overload, and suddenly you go like, ah, I can't watch it anymore. That show just for me treads that line and stays oh. just on the bearable side of it. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, so and so I, I liked it very much. I hadn't prepared to do an endorsement, but since we're talking about things German, uh, and although my novel reading really suffered during COVID, I'm loath to admit how much TV just just booted novels out of my out of my entertainment life. But I will recommend uh, the novels of of a late great um, German novelist uh, W G Sebald S E B A L D. Uh, he died a number of years ago. He lived his whole adult life in England, writing books that dealt obliquely with the horrors of the Holocaust. The two greatest of these books are The Emigrants and Austerlitz. 
And, um, you know, in comparison with books and movies that, that take calamities, historical global calamities head on, these books find discursive ways around them and sort of get at the pain and the sorrow indirectly through quietly evocative portrayals of people and, and their life dilemmas. So I, I love his writing. I am very experienced at starting the novel Austerlitz. Um, <laughs> I've started it many, many times. Um, all right. So, uh, Lindsay Lee Wallace, what are you going to recommend? Um, my first recommendation is the movie Crush, which stars Ali'i Cravalho, who is Josh, Tony Collette's, Joss, Tony Collette's daughter in The Power. Um, and it's just like a really cute, like coming of age sapphic love story movie. Um, and then also I, the reason I was thinking specifically about Ali'i Cravalho is that, um, at the premiere for The Power, she like made a statement about the disproportionate numbers of missing and murdered indigenous women by using the red handprint symbol, which I thought was a really powerful thing to do in this show that has a really strong feminist message. So I just am like, everyone should check out everything she does. She's incredible. She's also the voice of Moana. Um, and then my other recommendation is the novel Manhunt by Gretchen Felker Martin, which is a different take on sort of like a gendered, um, pseudo apocalypse apocalypse moment that you know if we're if we're in that genre as we've been discussing it then that's definitely another one that's worth reading although it's quite it can be quite graphic at sometimes but from what i've heard about the book version of the power that's also true so if that's your thing then i would recommend that as well all right um i'm going to make a recommendation that uh, to me ties you know, into the power, but in a, a very distant and intuitive way. Let me just preface this by saying that we're in the middle of this very, very complicated relaunch of our show. Uh, I'm also right at the end of a semester of teaching, and so I'm just like really tired and scattered all the time. And uh, and so I was going through some pitches that our show was getting. We get like 20 or 30 pitches a day, and I don't typically do any of them. Uh, but a guy named Howard Fishman, who's a very respected musician and music writer, pitched me about this uh, musician that he's written a book about, uh, a musician I'd never heard of. Her name is Connie Converse. Uh, she was active in the New York music scene, kind of folkish Americana music scene in the 1950s. Uh, she eventually disappeared and has never been found. Uh, and so I'm reading this and I, th I just reached over to my phone and pulled up my streaming service and started playing what they had. And I just about fell out of my chair. I, I have I've never heard of this woman. I've since then asked a lot of people who are greater music savants than I. And most of them have either barely heard of her or have never heard of her. Um, and there's just this remarkable combination of fragility and power. Power really was kind of the word that I was hearing in there. And this story is incredible. The whole story is just mind boggling. And so I woke up, you know, at 730 in the morning, never having heard of Connie Converse by 1030 in the morning. I was absolutely determined that we're going to do an entire episode of our show on Connie Converse. That's probably going to air May 2nd. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, you can sort of get ready for it. Um, there isn't a lot out there. There's also an, an album, a uh, more recent album of art songs. She hasn't been seen since like 1974 or something. But there's a, uh, it was, her music was also repurposed as art songs by a soprano and a pianist. Uh, I think it's called, actually, I think Howard produced that one too. But I think it's called Connie Converse, the, art, the piano songs or something. Anyway, there's, there's a way in which Connie Converse's incredible power seems to have been subverted and, and 
be taken away from us in a very premature manner and a very mysterious manner too. So encourage you to check her out. Okay, so what are we going to do? We're first of all, well, first of all, we're going to thank this wonderful panel: Rebecca Castellani, Rand Richards Cooper, and Lindsay Lee Wallace. Uh, and now, Kat and I are going to spend a little bit of time with you, just encouraging you once again to pledge during this show. In the last minutes of this show, you can help us out by making a pledge to the station. Right, Kat? That's right. Let me get my redemption here. You can call one eight hundred. 584-2788 or go to ctpublic.org slash donate. You just listened to an episode of The Nose, which means it's Friday. You know, Nose, great show. Friday, great day. Best day of the week, in my opinion. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, John Leguizamo annoys me. I kept thinking that the whole time. Not as much as Mutt does, but he does annoy me. But um, yeah, if the nose makes you think and you want more uh, content like this, you just heard Colin, we're going through a relaunch of the show. Um, And we can't do that without your support as a listener because we're a listener-funded station, no matter what Elon Musk thinks. Um, So 1-800-584-2788 or ctpublic.org slash donate. Right. And it is Pet Pledge Friday. Woo! Uh, That means we need 70 total pet pledges, pledges that you make in honor of a pet or maybe a pet in your neighborhood. You know, in in my neighborhood, there's a dog named Pesto who lives next door to a dog. That's a great name for a dog. Get this. Pesto lives next to a dog named Orzo. Wow. This was not done by any plan. Orzo and Pesto are next door door neighbors. That's insane. I don't believe that. Miss Flo lives down the street. I know all the dogs. I don't know anybody's any human beings' names in my neighborhood, but I know Dr. Watson and Miss Flo and Orzo and Pesto and all those people, So, except they're dogs. Anyway, make a pledge in honor of a dog that you know and love. And or a bird or a cat or a, or a, a cat, snake, yeah. you know, whatever. I guess people have pets that are not dogs. I never even consider them. <laughs> never even considered so, uh, But if we, get, uh, if we get 70 total pet pledges, we'll unlock a $5,000 challenge grant from People's Bank. Uh, People's Bank, real simple banking. They've been nice enough to make that uh, offer to us, and we appreciate it. Uh, and you can also make a pledge of $12.50 a month and get a sunflower bouquet yeah. delivered to your mom or somebody who's like a mom to you in time for Mother's Day. So, Kat, I think it's time that we say thank you to anybody who did call 1 800 584 2788 or pledge online at ctpublic.org. Click donate. Yeah, yeah, yeah.